Well, good morning. Once again, I want to welcome you on behalf of the Center for the Study of Religion to our conference on religion and bioethics, What Does It Mean to Be Human? To chair this first session of the day, we are very privileged to have with us Professor Harold Shapiro. During his distinguished term as president of Princeton University, among many other duties, Professor Shapiro played a valuable role, as Jim Childress mentioned last night, in chairing the National Bioethics Commission, and in that capacity became very intimately familiar with the debates swirling around this important topic. And Professor Shapiro played a valuable role in helping us plan this conference. Uh, early in the process, I remember on one occasion uh, meeting with uh, Professor Shapiro and asking for some suggestions of people who could address these issues in a broad-minded way, in a deep, thoughtful way that would connect some of the larger issues that we were hoping to discuss. He recommended some names, and I'm pleased to say those are the names who are the speakers at this conference. So we're very delighted that the conference has progressed this far, and we're very pleased to have President Shapiro here to chair this, this first session. Bob, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure for me to be able to participate in this entire conference, and uh, I certainly enjoyed yesterday's session very much. I'm looking forward uh, to the sessions today. Uh, we'll follow really the same format as we followed yesterday afternoon, namely Tom Murray, who I'll talk about in a second, uh, will speak first, my colleague Lee Silver will speak after that, then we'll have a question period subsequent to that, to that time. Uh, let me therefore begin, uh, at least with a short introduction of Tom Murray, who I am uh, proud to say I now consider a friend. Tom and I met as fellow commissioners in the National Bioethics Advisory Commission. And in fact, as I look at all of today's speakers, at least I met them in connection with work of the National Bioethics Advisory Commission, either as fellow commissioners or as people who testified before the commission or people whose work uh, I really had, or felt I had, to read and benefited so much from in my own thinking on many of these subjects. So I want to extend my own warm welcome to Princeton, uh, to each of them who have left their campuses and uh, come to spend some time here at Princeton. It's a great pleasure to welcome you to this university and for me to express my gratitude to you all uh, for your many decades of contributions to uh, uh, thinking in this area and the, your own contribution to national discourse on some of these important issues. So welcome uh, to Princeton. Well, one of my great pleasures in serving as chair of the National Bioethics Advisory Commission was getting to know the commissioners. Now, the National Bioethics Advisory Commission had one unusual characteristic over its five-year, uh, five- or six-year period, that even though people anticipated, the president anticipated when the commission was first appointed, that there'd be some turnover in the commission. Uh, just the uh, federal bureaucracy, the inertia 
the lack of priority, whatever it was, just never mobilized the White House to make any changes. And so even though uh, I had a number of meetings with the White House and we sort of talked seriously about how we might uh, rotate members, they could never quite get around to do anything about it for whatever the reason was. And that had a very nice dividend for all of us. We got to know each other well. Uh, we got to work well together. And whether it serves the national interest or not, I leave for others to uh, uh, make an evaluation of at some point in time. But in any case, for us as persons, it was extremely valuable. Now, Tom Murray, who I think many of you in this audience know very well, now head of the Hastings uh, Center, uh, has been a significant figure in the world of bioethics for a very long time. I was very pleased to see the title, or at least the suggested title, of uh, Tom's remarks, and particularly the words human flourishing, because those are words that Tom has used often in our discussion on various bioethic issues and in which he brings uh, an enormous amount of insight, as I've heard him talk about individuals, about families, and in some sense about what it means to be human in terms of how we understand those words, human flourishing. How does one express one's humanity? How does that get more fully expressed? And to what extent do the issues under consideration, whatever they may be, deal with that particular issue? I don't know um, how many of you have seen uh, Tom's uh, work recently. There was, of course, an article which Jim Childress and I were talking about just yesterday that appeared in the Post on, on cloning and issues of cloning. And while that article was very compelling for many reasons, I'm not going to describe it now, underneath it all uh, was this deep understanding or empathy and search for how it is that we can more fully express and most fully express our own humanity. And for always reminding me about that and always reminding the commission about that, uh, Tom played in that way and in many others uh, many, uh, a very important role in the commission. In any case, he is of that generation of scholars, of which there are others here in the room, who really brought uh, discourse in bioethics uh, to the forefront in this country over the last 20 years in a very, very significant way. So it's a great pleasure to welcome Tom back to Princeton. I hope you'll be here often. And it's my pleasure to introduce him to you at this time. Tom? Good morning. Thanks for getting up early, those of you who did. At least if who's not, it's not your usual habit to get up at this hour. Um, thank you, Harold, for the very generous introduction. I don't think I've ever been more frightened at having to address a topic. Uh, but when the invitation came to come and talk about what does it mean to be human, I thought, I've got to do this. Um, I have no idea what I'm going to say, but it just seems like exactly the right kind of question to ask. Um, and heaven knows if I'm, you know, if I know enough to provide any anything to say anything interesting about it. But you'll be the judge of that this morning. Um, if all humans everywhere were to decide to have no children, 
and had the means to live out that decision, the question, what does it mean to be human, would cease to be an interesting question, or more precisely, it would fail to find anyone interested in the answer, let alone capable of posing the question. So for the question of meaning to continue to be meaningful, we need creatures able to pose it. And that, in turn, requires that we continue to create beings able, at least in time, to puzzle over such questions. We must, in other words, we've given our current biological uh, limitations, continue to have and raise children. Well, that's a simple acknowledgement, but it's a good start for where I want to go today. It alerts us to the short-sightedness of a moral analysis that takes as its central or exclusive object the cognitively able, rational adult, uh, especially when that adult's gender is fixed as male and its moral relationships with others governed by unconstrained rational choice with, with all other persons regarded as morally equivalent, both in the respect due to them. That's a valuable and often necessary reminder in a world which forces uh, us to divide each other by color or sex or nationality or religion, but also in the deeper enduring ties that characterize the central moral relationships in our lives. And none of those ties is more central or enduring than the bond, I believe, between children and parents. Now, looking around this audience, there are fewer students here. But that's given the hour. I'm not surprised. Um, my own children really tried to make sure all their courses were scheduled after breakfast, which meant about you know, noon. Um, but for any of you there uh, between the ages, roughly of 15 and 25, who may be dancing furiously away from your parents, all I can say about what's going to follow is wait. Eventually, you'll understand what I mean. It may take a little while. And like it or not, the need to dance furiously away, to individuate, is itself a confirmation of the importance of that relationship between parents and children. And to its dynamic nature, it does change. Uh, the title I gave to this talk was something fairly grand about bioethics, uh, religion, and views of human flourishing, how to make public policy in the face of diverging ideas about human, uh, human flourishing. Uh, let me say a little bit about why I chose that title. Um, I'm going to focus primarily on assisted reproductive technologies today. Um, I'm going to begin by talking about a, a particular take on how to think about these issues, a take that goes under the name procreative liberty, and its, by its chief elaborator is walking in the room at this very moment. Hi, John. Um, uh, my dear friend of decades, John Robertson, a brilliant scholar who will have his own take on it later. I'm glad he's here because if, if I'm going to go at him, he might as well know what I'm going to say so he can respond later. Um, I think that uh, the idea of procreative liberty does illuminate some very important questions, but I, I think it's inadequate because it consigns virtually all moral considerations under then the individual liberty of the mature, deciding, rational adult adults involved. It assigns everything else to a kind of vague and feckless netherworld, which is called merely symbolic values. Now, in my point, from my point of view, virtually everything morally significant about parents and children is in this category. Uh, it includes non-religious as well as religious ideas about the meaning and significance of parenthood and about the values that families seek in their lives or enable the development of in the context of families. Now, uh, a word of uh, 
just, I guess, I'll reveal something right here. Because uh, when you use the two words families and values in the same sentence, for many people that connotes immediately a particular set of political views, which, to which I happen not to subscribe, by the way, being honest. I think, in fact, I think one of the great um, sad things that happened in the 1970s and 80s and is continuing is that the very notion of values and families was hijacked by a fairly narrow spectrum of the American uh, right. And I think one of the great failures of the American left was to cede that language in discourse. Um, people have values. You don't have to be, go to Jerry Falwell's church to have those values. Um, you can go to other churches, or you can go to no church at all. And I'm not a theologian, so I speak as someone who does not come to you as I, I can think about and have a lot of respect for religious traditions, but that's not where I work from. Um, let me give you a working definition of family. It's one that I borrow from a, um, a dear friend and a fellow scholar, Carol Levine. Um, Carol, Carol was the founder of the Orphan Project. Uh, she noticed that uh, in the early days of AIDS, and she was located in New York City, that there were plenty of people who took care of persons with AIDS, and there were various agencies and organizations that had uh, grown up to take care of people with AIDS. Uh, and there were, there were established social agencies to take care of children who were orphans. But here you had an entire population of children who were predictably going to become orphans because their parents had AIDS and were dying of it. Nobody was interested in them. They weren't orphans yet, and they didn't have AIDS, some, many of them. So Carol created an organization to try to respond to the needs of those children. Her definition of family is roughly this. I mean, last night we had some questions about definition. This is a rough working definition. Family members are individuals who by birth, adoption, marriage, or declared commitment share deep personal connections and are mutually entitled to receive and obligated to provide support of various kinds to the extent possible, especially in times of need. I'll work with that definition. Uh, now, as I think about the second piece of my title, religion, um, here, I'm, again, I'm not interested in the theology. I don't know theology. I'm not competent to do theology. I'm interested, though, in the complex interplay between religious traditions, which are themselves complex and diverse, both internally and externally. I mean, one of the things we learned at the National Bioethics Advisory Commission is to say that someone is a American Protestant doesn't tell you a great deal about their specific commitments on an issue because there's a wide range of perspectives within that broad umbrella. Uh, these traditions are also, they also evolve. They contain moral views about women and men, about children, and about what makes for good lives for women, men, and children. That's my working definition of human flourishing. Human flourishing is simply to ask, to ask what is human flourishing is merely to ask the question, what is it that mean, makes for a good life for a person like that, for persons. Uh, there's no simplistic relationship between religious traditions and, the view, and views of human flourishing. That is, you can't read off from, the, from uh, the datum that someone is a Lutheran, a conservative Jew, a Muslim, a Roman Catholic, or a Mormon, what their precise ideas about human flourishing are, uh, any more than we could do it for someone whose self-description was as an atheist, a Kantian, a molecular biologist, or a consequentialist, or a atheistic consequentialist molecular biologist. We could, I couldn't put consequentialist and Kantian in the same sentence. That would 
be self-refuting. Uh, a personal story may make the point. I'm the product of a deeply mixed marriage. That is, my father was an Irish Catholic from South Philadelphia, whereas my mother was an Italian Catholic from South Philadelphia. Very, very different. My mother's family referred to my father's as Metagans, which was the Abruzzese dialect for American. Um, now, the, there were stories I mean, in, in South Philadelphia when I grew up that uh, sort of highlighted some of the differences. It was a, when the son or daughter of an Irish Catholic family went into a religious order, which meant a Catholic order, um, the family celebrated. When the son or daughter of an Italian Catholic family went into a religious order, the family went into mourning. <laughs> same culture, supposed, same religious tradition, supposedly, both living in a very ethnically dense South Philadelphia, starkly opposite answers to the question whether a life of celibacy and childlessness is in fact a form of human flourishing. That's a slight exaggeration to the, in the story, but not that much. I should t confess that the dominant, if there are such things, is such a thing as a dominant culture, it was the Italian culture in my own household. And my father was rapidly and happily assimilated into that culture. Now, one last preliminary word about what do I mean by policy. Uh, Jim Childress offered a very nice description of public policy last night. Um, the only point I want to make is that you, you should at least know what the most important and relevant moral beliefs are when you make public policy. And I think that is one of the things that the Commission tried to do. And that was a primary reason in inviting in persons who spoke from religious traditions when we wanted to think about issues like human cloning or human stem cells. What, what are the views out there? And why do people hold the beliefs that they do? But to say that something in my tradition is morally right or wrong, desirable or undesirable, doesn't mean, without further, that, the, that your view should be inscribed in law. Um, I think it would be very, it's just very important to remember that there, should, there is a very complex relationship between ethics and public policy. It is not a single and straightforward thing. And to say that something in my belief, and for these reasons, X is wrong, doesn't automatically mean we ought to pass a law against it. There are further arguments that need to be made to decide what wise public policy are, especially in a, in a nation and a culture where you know that there are other people whose views are different than yours. Um, my wife, Cynthia, used to observe that when we would visit my parents, I would slip into behaviors from the time when I lived in my parents' home, like sitting there while other people clear the table after a meal. This was not a good thing, in her view. My life had changed, uh, and my way of being with my parents had to change as well, at least if I wanted to stay married to Cynthia, which I did. Uh, it was also, I came to realize, a matter of maintaining self-respect and of learning to treat my parents fairly as my own life changed. As I said, moral relationships between parents and children are dynamic, and they need to evolve along with the capacities and needs of the people involved. In contemporary bioethics, the regnant matter of thinking, manner of thinking about children and parents is this hybrid, interesting moral legal account, procreative liberty. Um, procreative liberty, now, John may, dis, may decide that I've, uh, may argue that I've given an inappropriate representation, but I'll leave that up to him. Here's what I think it says. It holds that choices concerning whether to have a child, un under what contractual arrangements, employing which technologies, 
to have children with or without a particular characteristics, certain alleles, even copying entire genomes, if you want, all of these are merely the other side of the coin, morally and legally speaking, to decide not to have a child, that is, to use contraception or abortion. So if you subscribe to a pro-choice position, which is the legal piece, but also to a moral position that says it is morally permissible for a woman to, to, to use contraception uh, or a man to use contraception or, and or for a woman to choose to have an abortion under at least certain circumstances, then you are committed, more or less, to the view that anything goes in having children as well. There's a side constraint on procreative liberty that it may not be properly exercised if it results in the creation of a child who is worse off than if he or she had never been born at all. Now, that standard troubles me, not because I think it's wrong. I think it just doesn't cover anything. I've described this as roughly similar to dividing by zero. It's an arithmetical operation that does not yield a meaningful answer. But all we need to agree here is that this constraint, as a practical matter, constrains far too little if it constrains anything at all. An example, imagine a couple who asks that the developing spinal column of their fetus be severed so that the child, would, when born, would be paraplegic. This is the request they make to their obstetrician. Why, you ask, would a couple want to do such a thing? Well, maybe they desire the experience of raising a child with a disability. Uh, maybe they believe the demands of caring for such a child will help keep their failing marriage together. Maybe they already have a child with paraplegia. They want another child, but they don't want their older child to feel somehow lessened or less capable than its younger sibling. Or maybe they don't want the, 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 the child to be to feel different from its older brother or sister. Uh, now, you can be curious about the reasons or motivations behind this request, but I think, as I understand procreative liberty, it disallows interest in reasons and motivations. It's none of your business, it declares. Now, back now to the notion that decisions about having a child are merely the other side of the moral legal coin of decisions not to have a child. Does that mean if you have concerns about commercialization of reproduction, the growing powers of control over the traits of our children, reproductive cloning, that you must also be opposed to abortion and contraception? Well, if that's an implication as a matter of empirical flat fact, it's obviously flatly incorrect. Many people, probably a, a robust majority of Americans, support women's access to abortion, yet have one or more of the kinds of qualms I've mentioned. They are worried about commercialization of reproduction, um, a variety of other things, other practices. But uh, here is some example that uh, a, a visiting scholar at the Hastings Center, uh, who, uh, ITR, who's here today, um, gave me from, uh, which she pulled out of Lori Knowles' book, um, the, no, Lori Andrews' book, The Clone Age. Um, as of 1999, you could select the sex of your, you could pay $10,000 to help a clinic select the sex of your fetus for family balance purpose. Um, if you're a single, as a single woman, you could order an overnight male sperm delivered your, to your door FedEx. Um, you could, this is an interesting one, if you had an abortion, there was a, a cryogenics solutions, it's named clinic of Houston, that would offer you the chance to freeze the fetus after the abortion and if technology is later developed to reanimate the fetus, you could try to undo the abortion decision at a later time. It's called, quote, pregnancy suspension, and they charge $356. I assume that's per year. Um, and, of course, if you got the money, you can pay 
well, back years ago, you could have paid Richard C. three some million bucks to try to clone you. He had never had the vaguest idea how to do it. Or you could pay a few of the other people running around, like the Raelians or uh, Antonori in, in Italy, who will claim they'll certainly take your money. There's no question about that part of the equation. Whether they would be able to deliver literally on their promise of cloning you or some body you want to clone, I'm, I have enormous skepticism. Maybe those tens of millions of people who think that uh, somehow I can believe that I can be supportive of abortion both morally and legally but still have qualms about some of these stranger reproductive practices, maybe they're just confused that they fail to see the, uh, the implications of their own views. They fail to see their inconsistencies. Or maybe those, aren't just, those are not just two sides of the very same coin. Maybe there's a better way, more complex maybe, but ultimately more encompassing and more satisfying that explains how qualms about the excesses of choice and control in reproduction cannot merely coexist with, but actually support a woman's choice not to have a child under her particular circumstances. Now, how do we get into the ways of thinking about of framing the issues that we now have? I'm modest enough to believe that uh, ideas, even the greatest ones, don't spring out of nowhere. They have roots and they're bound in particular conceptions and preconceptions and historical currents. I think the roots here are very old and deep. Um, they, they go way back, well beyond the beginnings of modern bioethics, uh, although that's the movement I know best, and so I will focus on that. Um, as bioethics began to gather steam as a field of intellectual discourse with an accompanying commentary on practical ethical issues, uh, there were other parallel social and political currents arising concerning women's reproductive capabilities, the emergence of effective and reasonably safe means for controlling those capacities, and with those new means of control, new ways of imagining what a woman's life would be like, new possibilities for flourishing for women. Many more women could now think about what a good life for them would entail that did, had, did not deny a central role in having and raising and loving children, but could also envision creative work and other activities outside of a home activities that uncontrolled and uncontrollable fertility made enormously difficult, if not impossible. Now, sadly, just when we needed a broad, open discourse about ethics and public policy, we got instead a heated ideological exchange and a no-quarters political debate. Um, ironically, the right-to-life pro-choice divide in the U.S. has resulted in an enormous hole in American public policy. Any political leader who would dare take on the world of infertility treatment, IVF, and the like, does so at risk of his or her political life. I'll say a bit more about that later. Um, since I'm here at Princeton, I can't resist dragging at least one Princeton, former Princeton professor, in here. Um, some 20 years ago, I had the privilege of sharing a dinner table at the annual Hastings Center Fellows Meeting with Paul Ramsey. Uh, a renowned theologian, and several of his former students who had gone on to become notable scholars themselves. I know that because otherwise they would not have been elected fellows of the Hastings Center. It's, very, it's tough. Um, uh, at that table, Ramsey told a story about having heard from his publisher, uh, he, who said, Dear Professor Ramsey, we are very embarrassed and saddened to inform you that in setting the pages of your most recent book, an entire page was left out 
Fortunately, it was only one sentence. But there's another Ramsey story that I, I want to tell. This one perplexed me greatly at the time, since I hadn't a clue what was going on. Um, at another fellows meeting, uh, Paul Ramsey and his longtime adversary, the theologian Joseph Fletcher, mentioned by Jim Childress last night, were both presented with an award. It's called the Henry Beecher Award after a, a Harvard-based anesthesiologist who really raised public consciousness about unethical practices in the treatment of human subjects in the 1950s. Beecher was a pioneer. So this work is given to, not even on an annual basis, on an every several years basis, to people for lifetime achievement in bioethics. In his acceptance remarks, and, and Ramsey and Fletcher were being given it together, Ramsey could not resist delivering what I remember as a barely indirect but clearly scathing assessment of Fletcher's life work. I don't think anybody there could have mistaken his target or missed the intensity of the scorn with which he described this work. Fletcher said nothing in his own defense. His wife, however, as I remember, stood up and lashed into Ramsey. This was a memorable evening for a young scholar just kind of getting, getting his legs in bioethics. Uh, it's also a useful antidote for anybody who's under the illusion that theologians are uniformly meek and gracious people, and I hope I... At least I was getting, I was under, coming to understand that. Now, later on, I think I came to understand more about what their disagreements were, and some of these disagreements bear very centrally on the question of what it means to be human. One crucial disagreement was over the proper way to think about the human body and its relationship to the person. Um, we all know the Descartian distinction between that which thinks, res cognitans, and the material world, res extensa. That's the most famous exposition of dualism. But the distinction between that which has thought and will and moral or spiritual significance on the one hand and the physical body on the other is much older than that, obviously. The theologian John, Robert, John Robinson long ago noted the differences in the way at least some great philosophers, Plato notably, regarded the human body as an impediment to true knowledge of the forms, as a tomb in which the body as a tomb in which the soul was forced temporarily to dwell. Robinson, in a memorable phrase, contrasted the Greek idea of humankind as, in his words, an angel in a slot machine with the Hebraic notion of personality as, in his words, an animated body and not an incarnated soul. Uh, Robinson published this in 1925, so this is not breaking news. Thirty-five years after that, in 1960, Joe Fletcher published his pioneering book, Morals and Medicine. The entity discussed emerging issues like contraception and human control over reproduction. Of the former, he wrote, Ramsey, uh, Fletcher's words, the moral stature of men. You're going to find a lot of men language in this stuff. Uh, they don't talk so much about persons or men and women. So, But I'm just reading. The, when you read a quote, you can't edit. You've got to read the quote. The moral stature of men, their truly human status, is measured by the knowledge of their circumstances, including physical nature and by their ability to control those circumstances toward chosen rather than fatally determined ends. So for Fletcher now, control and choice are good. Fate and nature at best morally dubious. He exalted artificial means of conception. Fletcher's words, to be a person, have moral, to have moral being, is to have the capacity for intelligent causal action. It means to be free of physiology, exclamation point. 
It means to be free of physiology. That is what it is to be a person. So for Fletcher, the least natural course was the morally most elevated course. Uh, I think actually in, in Fletcher's work, we do find the seeds of some of the intellectual currents that lead to procreative liberty, the moral valorization of choice and control, the elevation of the artificial, and the view of the natural as somewhere between morally irrelevant and as an obstacle to be overcome. Now, Paul Ramsey, in his very influential 1970 book, The Patient as Person, offered a very different take. Here he writes, here with respect to taking organs from living donors, that, quote, the only human life we know to respect, protect, and serve in medical care is irremediably physical and presented to us with its moral claims solely within the ambit of a bodily existence. Our body, that is, if not always a pliant and willing vessel, is nonetheless morally inseparable from who we are. The artificial is not innately and without further argument superior to the natural. That our nature is to be embodied is not itself a cause for shame. And any deep and authentic understanding of what it means to be human needs to acknowledge our best understandings of this full existence as embodied human beings. Not merely our reason, not merely our capacity for sentience, not even merely our physical embodiment. We have to acknowledge that to be human is also to be a creature that is inescapably social. This is my take. We begin in complete dependency, relying on others to care for us. We begin as infants and then children, and in intimate and lifelong relationships often with the adults who provide our care. So with some help from Paul Ramsey and others, let me turn from reflecting on the biological component of what it means to be human to the develop, our developmental and social natures. In The Patient as Person and a later book, Ethics at the Edges of Life, Ramsey extended his scope of analysis from our biological to the social nature. At least he began to address what parents owe children. Um, in an important historical, historically important exchange with another theologian, in this case the Roman Catholic uh, Dick McCormick, over research on children not directly intended for that child's benefit. It goes under the rubric of non-therapeutic research on children. Um, Ramsey declared that permitting even innocuous research on one's child is immoral and violates, in his phrase, the meaning and duties of parenthood. He goes on, it is hard to see how this can be an expression of parental care or anything other than a violation of the nature and meaning of the responsibilities of parenthood as a covenant among the generations of men. That's pretty resounding language. Now, remember, what we're talking about is potentially uh, having your child play with blocks while somebody watches. That's research on children, non-therapeutic research on children. Or perhaps taking a tiny blood stick from the heel to test for the, the population prevalence of a particular genetic disorder. Um, for Ramsey, all of that is equally painted with the same brush as a violation of the meanings and duties of parenthood. Um, now, I've argued, I argued in my book, The Worth of a Child, that both Ramsey and, Mac and McCormick were led astray by trying to cash out the moral dimensions of this kind of research, including innocuous non-therapeutic research on children, but trying to cash it out on the coin of mature, autonomous, informed consent. For Ramsey, the logic was crystal clear. Informed consent by the human subject of research is an absolute precondition for research to be morally justifiable. Children cannot give consent, therefore there can, no, there can be no research on children that is morally permissible, period, 
end the story. McCormick floated a notion he called vicarious consent, which he argued, in his words, is morally valid precisely insofar as it, a reason, as it is a reasonable presumption of the child's wishes, a construction of what the child would wish could he consent for himself. Well, um, if you're a little confused by that, bear with me, so was I. I confess, most children of my acquaintance would not happily volunteer for even a tiny blood draw, uh, nor would they volunteer for an ear examination or numerous other minimally risky procedures routinely employed in research. Both Ramsey and McCormick take account of one element of children's biological nature, that their cognitive ability takes time and experience to ripen. They did less well, I think, with children's social nature. McCormick tried, I think, I fear unsuccessfully, to justify this research by making an account of children's moral psychology that concludes, well, they really would consent if they were mature, morally responsible, thoughtful people. So it's enough that we let their parents consent on their behalf because their child would want to do so if the child could do so. And it's a little confusing here. As anyone who's raised a child knows, however lovable and empathetic they may be at times, they aren't always. And it takes experience, guidance, and lots of time before they acquire a kind of robust moral maturity. In other words, if they were not children, um, McCormick would say they should consent. So therefore, since they are children, we can assume that they would consent. It doesn't work, I don't think. His take on children's inner moral life is totally implausible, but no more so than Paul Ramsey's take on the nature of parents' moral relationships with their children. Ramsey condemns any parent who would permit his, her or his child to participate in an innocuous study in the language I've already used, violating the nature and meanings of the responsibilities of parenthood. Now, children are not miniature adults. The complex moral relationships between parents and children are not well described by high-standing, high-sounding and vague allusions to the nature, meanings, or duties of parenthood. I think we need an account of that relationship that does justice to its remarkable complexity, its dynamic character, and its unsurpassed significance for the emotional vitality and moral development of children and parents. This is, make sure you... I don't want to lose that last bit. I'm convinced that parenthood is as important for parents as it is for the children. I want to return briefly to the social and historical context. Um, you could say, as many scholars have, that the availability of reliable and reasonably safe contraception methods led to a sharp change in sexual mores. It's probably true, but it's also maybe looking through the wrong end of the telescope. Um, because contraception, and then in 1973, the legalization of abortion, gave women the means to avoid having a child when, for whatever reason, they did not want to, as I said earlier. What also happened, particularly in the wake of Roe v. Wade, was that different views of women's nature and flourishing had now been laid out, publicly displayed for all of us to see, and, had be and became rapidly pivotal in the fierce debates and policy disputes over abortion. Uh, Kristen Luker describes these views and the shock of recognizing that other people had different views than mine in the wake of Roe v. Wade in her well, terrific book, Abortion and the Politics of Motherhood, in which she interviewed extensively pro-choice and pro-life activists and paid attention not only to their narrow views but to broader currents and, and broader aspects of their views and their social situations. 
less attention has been paid to differences in the conceptions of men's, men's flourishing. I think that's every bit as important. And I have to give one another personal note. Uh, for several years, I cared for my children who were then very young as a single parent until I met Cynthia and we decided to get married. Um, we did this, the courtship was very rapid. I didn't want to give her time to realize what she was getting into. Um, that's not getting taped, is it? Uh, so we cared together for those children, including a daughter born from our marriage. Um, the caring I experienced from my own parents, from my father as well as my mother, prepared me well to care for and enjoy profoundly my own children. As a consequence, perhaps, of this personal history, a sharp division of capacities between men and women has never struck me as very convincing. Women can be more or less competitive, so can men. Men can be better or worse nurturers. Same for women. Thinking about this has convinced me we must take seriously conceptions of human flourishing. Uh, and in, centrally, whether, you, whether one believes that men's flourishing and women's flourishing is more similar than it is different or more different than it is similar. We have to think about that if we're to have any chance for a meaningful and morally encompassing dialogue that will allow us to have robust and sensible public policy. Because those differences, I'm, I am convinced, are extremely important and central. Otherwise, it's difficult to explain why roughly the same people tend to have views of a particular kind about abortion and the moral status of the fetus, about equal opportunity legislation. What's the connection between, you know, gender discrimination in the workplace and whether or not, and the, um, the metaphysics of, fetal, of, of uh, embryonic personhood. Do you see it? It's not so apparent to me. I think you only understand it if you step back and you begin to realize that these are parts of much larger worldviews. They are parts of worldviews about what it is to have a good life, to flourish as a man and or, or as a woman. Now, if we're gonna do this, we have to acknowledge diversity exists, great diversity. Um, the Taliban certainly make very sharp distinctions in their perceptions of good lives for men and for women. Women shouldn't go to school, for example. These differences are likely to reflect and be reflected by assumptions about men's and women's natures and flourishing. Um, you're going to be, I'm shocked that I'm doing this, but I'm actually going to read a passage from Beowulf. Uh, I've uh, recently read Seamus Heaney's The Irish Poet's uh, translation of Beowulf, which is very brilliant. Um, when I, I was reading it when I encountered an article in the New York Times about a community of Pashtun warriors. And in that article, they described, the warriors were describing what it is to be a man, to be a man in this culture. Uh, that is, to, to have honor in battle, glory, revenge. And it was eerily echoing a passage from the poem. So in this passage, Beowulf is trying to rally the Danes who were still suffering under Grendel's murderous rampages. Grendel would come up from wherever he, his lair and he'd come and he'd go into their, into their house and their um, meeting hall and he would just start ripping people apart and throw some in a bag that he carried and drag them back and he'd eat them. It's not a pleasant story. Um, this is what Beowulf says. Why, sir, do not grieve? It is always better to avenge dear ones than to indulge in mourning. 
for every one of us, living in this world means waiting for our end. Let whoever can win glory before death. When a warrior is gone, that will be his best and only bulwark. It was almost precisely a rendering of the same kind of view of men's flourishing that I saw in the description of this particular community. Now, I make no claims to be able to describe the full range of views of human flourishing in the contemporary U.S. You have to, we must give diversity its due, but not more than its due. We also share some values. If you ask your neighbors, Where's, where do you find the greatest source of meaning in your life? They will answer overwhelmingly, in my family. Now, they may have a narrow view of what means family or a very expansive view of what means family. That's not important at the moment. If you talk with someone who recently had their first child, as has been true of my daughter, Kate, and her husband, Matt, we just had our first grandchild, Grace Amelia, they are likely to tell you, through the haze of exhaustion, that the experience is life-transforming and wondrous. They just can't believe what's happened. None of this, you need to know, is peculiar to post-industrial America. In a stunning scholarly tour de force, the book The Kindness of Strangers, The Abandonment of Children in Western Europe from Late Antiquity to the Renaissance, the late historian John Boswell wrote, Everywhere in Western culture, from religious literature to secular poetry, parental love is invoked as the ultimate standard of selfless and untiring devotion. Central metaphors of theology and ethics presuppose this love as a universal point of reference and language must devise special terms to characterize persons wanting in this, it's in quotes, natural affection. That's Boswell. I can agree with Thomas Jefferson, who wrote to his own daughter of his hope that his granddaughter, in Jefferson's word, words, will make us all and long happy as the center of our common love. The awful price that must be paid sometimes for this profound attachment when a child dies is the enormous lifelong grief that comes in its wake. People say that the death of a child, your child, is the worst thing that can happen to a person. Uh, our experience confirms the truth of that. Of course, there are families in which deep affection never takes hold or where it loses out to selfishness or indifference. And there are times and places when grinding poverty and uncontrolled fertility lead to the abandonment of children who could not be cared for, simply could not be cared for. Boswell argues persuasively that child abandonment in the eras he studied were every bit as much, if not primarily, a manifestation of deep poverty, not indifference to children, and that they were by no means always equivalent to infanticide. Rather, practices and institutions emerged that matched at least some, perhaps a great many, abandoned children with foster parents. And the book is devoted to explaining how that had, would have happened. Now, all parents are imperfect. Some are downright awful. Some families are so blighted by poverty or illness or oppression or any of the multitude of factors that can stunt the blossoming of love and mutual concern that these good things don't happen. These undeniable facts, though, should not blind us to the central moral and emotional importance of families, to the crucial moral relationship between parents and children. Um, I want to emphasize, again, a point, that parents themselves can flourish 
when they learned to care well for their children and watch their children blossom under the warmth and light of that love. We will find better insight, I believe, about what it means to be human by reflecting upon the central relationships in our lives and the significance of those relationships for our flourishing. We must take care to acknowledge and understand differences among conceptions of flourishing. But that should, we should not reflexively set aside the best and most broadly shared understandings simply because no single one commands perfect universal accord. Those different conceptions lie scarcely beneath the surface of some of our most bitter public disputes, yet we regularly fail to acknowledge them or to probe for possible areas of agreement. The language, the discourse in which we carry out much of these debates, for example, about assisted reproductive technologies, is, in my view, terribly thin, unsatisfactory, and failing to capture these most deeply important questions. I believe that's the case in the debate over abortion where it's much easier to argue over irresolvable metaphysical questions about the moral status of fetuses and embryos or to, you know, make resounding claims about the limits of state control over women's bodies. These are both important questions. But they're not the only ways in to broader disagreements about what it means to be human than what it is to flourish. Joseph Fletcher's valorization of artifice, control, and choice falls grievously short of a rich and full portrait of what it means to be human and to flourish. Paul Ramsey's implicit conception of the nature and meaning of parenthood also misses the mark in a curiously one-sided and joyless view of what it means to be a parent. Uh, that doesn't mean that that's the way he lived his life. It's just what he wrote. Um, and that's always, for me, a signal about something to worry about. <laughs> the standard account of procreative liberty focuses on the act of choosing by the adults involved. The child's future well-being is a scarcely visible and, and, in practice, useless side constraint. Now, I can't tell you which full-fledged, rich conception of human flourishing should prevail in the public policy debate, nor do I even think that's the right model. There isn't one conception that should prevail. But I do believe that failing to engage each other on these conceptions and on the values central to family life results in a moral debate in which many of the most important elements remain hidden or scarcely noticed. It results in public policies that are fiercely resisted as an abortion or virtually non-existent, which is true of assisted reproductive technologies in the contemporary United States, a lapse, by the way, that makes us an outlaw and an object of great curiosity in the rest of the industrialized world. What it means to be human is exactly the sort of question we have to ask that so many of us find a great source of meaning in our families and that parents have loved and cared for children and grown themselves in the process of caring for and raising those children appears to be true not just for 21st century Americans, by the way, not even just since the norm of compassionate marriage flourished in the mid-19th century, but for more than two millennia. These things seem worth taking note of. Choice and control are to be fed but not, limit, not limitlessly, and not as decisive moral panaceas. That is, informed consent is not the universal solvent of all moral dilemmas. It's good and it's useful and necessary, but it's not the whole story. In the inner moral and emotional lives of families, choice does not resolve all moral controversies, and control can easily grow into a monstrous destructive force, corrupting relationships, 
distorting expectations and, and giving power sway where love and mutual consideration should rule. Part of what it means to be human is to honor that which shapes our lives and gives them meaning. Thank you. introduce my colleague, uh, Professor Lee Silver, who will comment on these and associated, on associated issues. Uh, at one time, I thought that perhaps um, Professor Silver and I shared very little in common, that is, we were both members of the faculty here, but on the other hand, he was in molecular biology, I was trained in economics and mathematics. On the other hand, we do have something in common, that is, we both came to consideration of some of these bioethical issues rather late in our careers and are valiantly trying to see if there's something we can say, and he certainly proved that he has quite a bit to say at this time. So it's my pleasure to introduce to you my colleague, Lee Silver. Lee. Um, first, I'd like to say that um, I don't disagree with the main point of view that uh, Tom Murray has uh, has uh, talked about this morning, which Tom may be surprised about because we've disagreed before in many other debates. But I would agree with him that humanness gains meaning in the context of the parent-child relationship, the parent-child bond, and also in the context of the human family. Much of what we, when we talk about human beings, it gains meaning within that context. Now, I had prepared my talk before I knew what uh, uh, Tom was, was going to say, and so I don't want to respond as much, because I really agree with many of the uh, points that he raised. Um, don't want to respond to his talk as much as I want to give a biologist's perspective um, on some of these issues. And I, I want to say at the outset, it's important to understand what I'm trying to do. Physicists very often um, have thought experiments where they say, you know, what would happen if we took a person and we dropped him into a black hole going at the speed of light? And uh, they don't think about the ethical consequences of that because the experiments are so absurd. Um, biologists often are prevented from having similar thought experiments, even though they can clarify issues. And what I'm going to do today is give you some thought experiments. I'm not pretending they're ethical. I just want to give you thought experiments as a way of trying to clarify um, some issues. And I think it's really important to understand biology. Reasonable people, as Peter Singer said the other night, reasonable people must acknowledge biology informing bioethical views and philosophical views that, that uh, impact upon life. I also want to say that in my brief discussion, I'm going to raise a lot of questions and not give very many answers. I'm also going to show you some extremely disturbing pictures, uh, not because I want to um, anger you or upset you, because I think it's going to give us some insight into what it means to be a human being. How do we define the human being? Is there a pointer or uh, no? So give a... Great, John. Thank you. Okay. So how do we define a human being? I'll talk. I, I don't have very much time to talk, so I'm going to go through, through things very quickly, and I'm not going to fully support everything I'm going to say. Uh, but I want to give you a couple of examples that are going to, I hope, force you to think very seriously about what it means to be a human being and what it means to say what comes after us, what will be in the future of human life. I'm going to give you an example that's actually, if you're interested, is on this website over here. 
Uh, and it's a medical example. This is the disturbing picture I'm going to show you. Uh, can we turn the lights off on the, on the um, uh, board over here? This is a 13-day-old uh, baby infant. You can see uh, her head is up here. Her legs are coming out over here. This is, these are all real pictures from a, um, a hospital file. And in, in this part of her, her backside, she has a tumor that is called a teratoma. And this teratoma formed naturally when she was a fetus from one of the stem cells in her ovary. This is actually not as rare as you might think. Uh, it actually happens uh, not all the time, but it does happen. The teratomas are present inside babies at birth. And physicians remove this teratoma. This is what the extracted intact teratoma looks like. It's about this big, as you saw. Um, this is a horrible kind of thing to think about. And when you look inside this teratoma, it's really quite remarkable. Uh, what you see when, when they looked inside, they saw parts of a pancreas, stomach, small, large intestines, lung, respiratory tract, all this kind of stuff here. There was some myocardium tissue, which means that this thing was beating, uh, blood was flowing through it. Uh, it had glial cells, ganglia, and it had some neural tissue and a lower extremity. The neural tissue means that it had functioning nervous tissue, which is kind of like a primitive, extremely primitive kind of a brain inside of this thing over here. And if you look inside this little mass over here and you peel away the skin, what you see is a um, human-like uh, extremity here. It's kind of like a leg with a foot hanging off the end. And you can look inside the foot. And if you do an x-ray, you can see um, like the knuckle, the bone structure. And, and when they uh, touch this foot, when they touched it with a pin, it responded to touch. So there's a question as to what is this thing over here. And I want to um, uh, contrast three different points in this picture, uh, this slide over here. In this circle, there is an invisible human embryo. Uh, at the beginning of development, you probably can't see this, but I'm holding up a, uh, a pin. A pin. And at the beginning of development, after fertilization, the embryo is smaller than the top of this pin. In fact, you can probably fit about 100 human embryos onto the top of this pin. Now, that human embryo, which fits onto the top of this pin over here, under certain circumstances, it's invisible, it can develop into a, a child. And so people, uh, some people will say that the fact that this uh, point can develop into a child says that we should treat this uh, embryo over here with respect and the dignity that's deserving of, of human life, uh, either because it has, just simply because it has the potential to become a human being, or some religious traditions say it is a human being. But this very same embryo can also, under other circumstances, develop into a teratoma that looks like this. Now, the interesting thing about this teratoma is that this teratoma is much more developed than the embryo. This embryo does not have any neural tissue, does not have any pancreas or stomach or, or liver or kidney or any other kinds of tissues. And so along this pathway, which is an alternative pathway of development for this embryo, uh, the, the mass gets larger and more differentiated. Now, most people, uh, I think, would say that this is not a human being. This does not deserve, of, deserve of any respect or any, uh, does not have any right to life. Most people would say that it's absurd to think that this has such a uh, right to life that this child should be forced to carry this inside of its body for the rest of its life. And yet, if you believe that's the case, then somewhere along, and you also believe that this does have a right to life or respect uh, in some way, then some way, somewhere along this pathway, you have to say that you get rid of that right. Uh, to life, that somewhere along this pathway the um, uh, humanness is taken out of this organism. 
Uh, now, you might say, well, and, and that doesn't seem to make very much sense to me, but people might say, well, it's taken out when you lose the potential to become a human being. Along here, there's a potential to become a human being, but along here somewhere the potential is lost. And that's what people used to think in the old days, but we know that's no longer true. Inside of this teratoma, there are embryonic stem cells, and I won't go into the discussion right now, but these stem cells inside of this teratoma actually have the potential, I'm not saying it's a very high potential, but they do have the potential to form a human being. So potential alone, I would argue, is not uh, sufficient to describe a human being. If you don't believe that uh, this is deserving of the right to life, if you think that this can be thrown away in medical waste, uh, then you can't accept potential as being descriptive of, of human life. So how do we define a human being? Well, uh, besides potential, people say, well, a living organism with human genes, the awful teratoma that I just showed you rules out that definition of life. That is a living organism with human genes. It even has bits of human organs within it. So I don't think that this is a uh, sufficient way in which we can describe a human being. Uh, there is a free living organism. That, that teratoma could be kept alive if we hooked it up to a, uh, um, a blood machine that was pumping blood into its blood vessels, but if we cut it off, it would die. But this isn't sufficient, I don't think, either, because there are, there are people who are clearly human beings who are hooked up to uh, artificial respirators. And if we cut off their, the artificial respirator, they would die. They are clearly human beings. So this is not a definition uh, with a one-to-one -one correspondent with, with human beings either. Um, then there is this uh, picture that I'm showing here with my son and um, a chimpanzee, because this really, I think, shows us what the difference is between human beings and non-human beings. What's the difference between the chimp and a human? Well, in fact, our biologies are remarkably similar to each other. And the only difference between the chimp, the only significant difference is the way we look. We look a little bit different. Actually, my son's eyes are the same as, as the chimp's eyes. Um, but we do look a little bit different, and that's important because that makes us members of the human family. And of course, the most important thing is that we have human minds and chimps have chimp minds. And that's a huge difference between humans and chimpanzees. So there's both a appearance and mind that distinguish human beings from, from chimpanzee, and I would argue uh, allow us to treat human beings differently than chimpanzees. Uh, what's responsible for this difference between appearance and mind? Well, we used to think that we were so different from chimpanzees, even when we had a knowledge of genetics in, in the beginning of the 20th century, we thought that our, we must have totally different genes than chimpanzees. Uh, and in fact, what scientists have discovered, people working on the Human Genome Project, have discovered over the last uh, uh, 20 years, but especially within the last <clears throat> five years, is that we are incredibly similar to human beings at the genetic level. In fact, we have a 99% similarity. If you compare chimp and human DNA, each one of these letters represents a bit of information in the human genome. And uh, when this is a particular region of the human genome, uh, if you compare the information in the human and the chimp, you look at the yellow letters. That's the difference between the chimp and the human. And right now, it seems that we don't have any genes that are different from chimp genes. There are those who say, well, you know, human genes are sacred and animal genes are not, so you can patent animal genes, but you can't patent human genes. That makes no sense because, in fact, most chimp genes are indistinguishable from human genes. So you can get around that law saying, oh, you can only, you can only patent uh, animal genes but not human genes by going to the chimp, pulling out the gene, which is the same as the human gene. So what is the difference then? How come uh, there, these differences are responsible for the difference between chimps and humans? Most um, 
developmental biologists these days think that, and that some actually think it's just a few hundred changes that are responsible, that may, mainly responsible for the difference between chimps and humans. But I'm going to be conservative and suggest that maybe there's a few thousand changes like this that are mostly, are mostly responsible for the difference between chimps and humans. In other words, a few thousand little bits of informational difference is what gives you this versus, versus this. So, and, and I should say that there are, there's a group of scientists being led by um, a Japanese scientist right now named uh, Sakaki, who's trying to sequence the chimp genome and trying to identify the critical differences. That's actually more difficult than it sounds uh, to be able to distinguish the differences that are critical from those that are not critical. But I think it's going to happen. It's just a question of when will it happen in the next 10 years or will it take a lot longer than that. It will happen at some point in the future. Now, once we know the differences between the chimp and the human, uh, genome, this is the thought experiment that I want you to consider very seriously. It's a purely thought experiment. Uh, and the experiment is that if we took two chimp embryos, and I should tell you that uh, you can't distinguish a chimp embryo from a human embryo under the microscope. They look identical to each other, just like most of our other biology looks identical to each other. If you took a chimp embryo and uh, two chimp embryos, and you took one and you genetically engineered the genes, the differences, maybe a thousand DNA bits, and you engineered the chimp embryo so that you only engineered those genes that were responsible for creating the mind, and you engineered them from a chimp version into a human version. That's this embryo over here. And over here, you took a different embryo and you genetically engineered it, uh, only the genes that are responsible for appearance. Actually, I think appearance is going to be a lot fewer genes. I think I can think of ways in which you could just eliminate the hair. I mean, these are kinds of things. Actually, there have been mutant chimps born that people have suspected as being hybrids between chimps and humans which is not the case. But a few gene differences probably will give you rise to an embryo which has human appearance genes as opposed to chimp appearance genes. Now, what you would get if you did this, it's a great picture. You've noticed the book that he's reading over here. It says human behavior. Um, if you got this, which is a mutant chimp with a human mind, would you consider that to be a human being? It looks like a chimp. Very importantly, it has chimp parents. And that's very important to human beings, as, as uh, Tom Murray talked about. Would this be a human being? Or, and the other question, of course, is you know, whether or not you're confused as to whether or not it's a human being, would you give it the rights and uh, respect that you give to human beings? Um, I don't know, but I want you to consider that. And then down here, there's another example. This is clearly just a mutant chimp that happens to look like a human being. But it tugs at us because it looks like a human being we might say, well, it looks like a human being. I know it's just a mutant chimp. It looks like a human being. Is it, does it deserve rights simply because it has the appearance of a human being? As I told you, these are the two main things that differ between chimps and humans. I don't have an answer to that, but you have to think about that. I should just, as an, as an aside, say that genetic engineering of chimp embryos is not subject to regulations that control human experimentation because you're not experimenting on humans, even though the outcome might be something that is human. Uh, this is sort of a fascinating little side that I won't uh, go on further with. Um, <clears throat> so let's say you start with a chimpanzee. Let's go all the way. Okay. You take its embryo. You need two chimpanzees to make an embryo. Uh, you make an embryo out of it. You engineer both the genes that are responsible for mind and body. So you get a chimp embryo, a mutant chimp embryo, uh, that's able to develop into something that looks like this. <laughs> and so the question is, is she human? And um, some of you may question that, but <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is that what's the difference between her 
and another human being. Well, you know, it's coming back to the point that Tom Murray raised, which is that the parents are chimps. She's a mutant chimp, uh, in a sense. And when I gave this question, I, I gave this question to my class, which they thought was extremely um, um, uh, unfair. But I gave this question to my class. A number of students said they refused to answer the question because the experiment is unethical. And I thought that was kind of interesting because, in fact, this kind of pathway has already happened. It's happened through the course of evolution. Over five million years, uh, this, this genetic mutations have taken uh, something that looked kind of like this, not exactly a chimp, has taken this along over a path of five million years from this place to this place. So it's, it wasn't unethical when it happened naturally, but some people think that it would be unethical to make a chimp like this. I'm not quite sure what is unethical about this. I mean, because I guess the unethical part is that this chimp's probably happy in its state and it'd be kind of have, you know, human angst if it became a human being. Um, you can tell me what else is unethical about this, might be interesting. So these are the kinds of ways in which we define a human being. I talked about presence of human genes, I don't think is sufficient. Uh, potential to become a human being, I would argue, is not sufficient. Human appearance and human mind, those are both very important. Uh, but then the experiments I just showed you sort of call those things into question a little bit. And the fifth point, which I had on my slide even before I heard Tom Murray's talk, is that a lot of what makes a human being is the fact that the child has human parents. I mean, something that is born to human parents, most people would agree, is, is a human being. It's a very important um, consideration. Now, it's a little bit, so, so basically you say, okay, well, human beings come to human parents, and you know, we're not gonna treat chimps exactly the same way, even if they look like humans or they have human intelligence because they don't come out of human parents. If you look at evolution over the last um, five million years, I have this little 40 miles here, just to give you an idea of what happened between in the last five million years. There, the number of generations between this and this is such that if you, 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 if you people held hands in a row going for 40 miles, let's say from Princeton to, to Newark, and you held hands sort of in a row, that's the number of generations that you would go from this common ancestor from, uh, between the chimp and humans to us today. And everywhere along that row of, of individual beings, parents and children would not look very different from each other. The changes, as you all know, through evolution are very, very, very gradual along that way. Now, the Catholic Church, specifically Pope John Paul II, has accepted evolution as a likely scenario of how we got to be here on the earth. But he says that there is an ontological discontinuity, those are his words, uh, that somewhere along this pathway um, there was a human being, that uh, generation of human beings where the parents were not human beings and the children were human beings. This is an artist's rendition of what uh, a pre-human named Lucy, uh, the skeleton was discovered, looks like. And so what the Pope is suggesting is that this is a human being and this is not. Even though, as I said, all the way along the way, the, the children never looked very different from, from the parents. Uh, as a biologist, I find that difficult to, to accept. Um, I mean, we have, just have no proof that uh, this has a human mind and this one doesn't, but the biology doesn't suggest that is that is the case. What the biology suggests is that along the evolutionary pathway, there's a gradual emergence of human beings, and the same thing happens along the developmental pathway as well. There's a gradual emergence from this embryo, microscopic embryo to a human being. Gradually, humans come into existence. Science is never going to be able to tell you that there's a specific point, because there is no specific point uh, at which human beings come into existence. So I'm gonna speak very briefly, because um, I know my time is going out very, very quickly, about the future of humankind. If we look at the one characteristic that uh, is very important to human beings, which is uh, our intelligence, which is not strictly correlated 
with brain size, but there's a bit of a correlation. You look at skull size over the last, our ancestors over the last three million years, you see this sort of exponential increase in skull sizes where we are today. And the question is, in the future, are we going to get smarter? Um, this is how we looked five million years ago. Not exactly, but uh, kind of like this five million years ago is how we look today. Uh, how are we going to look in five million years? Is our appearance going to change? Is our mind going to change? Is our appearance going to change? Well, I would argue that um, it depends on politics. But uh, in the past, evolution occurred by natural selection. And uh, future evolution of minds and appearance by natural selection is either unethical, I'll explain why that's the case in a minute, or unlikely as long as world industrialization survives and expands. And I guess I'm less optimistic about that today than I was three months ago. Uh, but assuming that world industrialization does uh, survive and expand, there's something that's very important to understand, which is smart people, however you define smartness, don't have more babies than dumb people. And beautiful people, again, however you want to define beautiful, uh, just using these words just really as icons, beautiful people don't have more babies than ugly people in industrialized society where we have freedoms. Now, if a smarter person doesn't have more babies than a person who is less smart, and they're actually genetic contribution to intelligence, there's not going to be any evolution of intelligence. The only way natural selection has worked in the past is by some genes giving individuals that carry those genes and reproductive advantage. Evolution is all based on reproductive advantage. Industrialized societies, there is no reproductive advantage to being smart or beautiful. So therefore, I don't think those are going to change if, if we go along with the assumption that the entire world becomes industrialized soon. Uh, the other thing, of course, is that natural selection in the future is unethical because uh, natural selection is based on those who are smarter or prettier basically killing off or preventing others from reproducing. And that's unethical. The right to life and liberty uh, basically gives rise to reproductive equality. By reproductive equality, I mean that it doesn't matter who you are. You have an equal ability or right to reproduce or not be able to reproduce, whatever the case may be. Uh, will humans stay the same now, or is there another way in which we could evolve? And the only other way that we could evolve, and I suggest is likely at some point in the distant future, is through human-directed evolution, which is also called artificial selection, which is a very powerful force. This is what we, as human beings, have done to this wolf. This is a great wolf that has been directed into all of these un unbelievably unnatural animals that you see over here. That was done by human will. And the same kind of thing um, could be done, Not in, this is all done by breeding, but the same kind of goal could be reached by human beings trying to alter the genes they give to their children. Now, I don't have time to go into genetic engineering. I'm going to talk very, very briefly about one point, because I always like to be a contrarian. Um, some people say, well, all genetic engineering is bad. And other people say, well, genetic engineering to overcome disease is OK, but not for enhancement. I'm going to give you one final slide where I show you where I don't think it's so easy to distinguish between disease and enhancement. And the example I'm going to give you is the fuzzy line between health and enhancement when it comes to male height. Now, it turns out, if you look at the normal distribution of height in any population, it's great. It's a bell curve. It doesn't matter what population you look at. It's a bell curve. I don't have any numbers down here. Uh, this is the natural variation in height across the normal male population. And it turns out in the United States, not in Japan, I learned, but in the United States, every added inch of height up to a point provides an advantage in life, a statistical advantage, which means that all other things being equal, that if you are taller, you're likely to make more money. That's been proven by uh, statistics in the United States and in other Western countries as well. So there's a huge difference, actually, for over here on the curve 
or you're over here on the curve, a huge difference in terms of your advantage in America. Turns out, as I said, not to be true in Japan. Uh, so the first question is, is the very real advantage of being tall naturally, is that fair or unfair for a child to be born with this advantage relative to a child over here on this curve? I might think it's unfair. You may think, well, that's just, you know, that's the luck of the draw. That's the way it is, but maybe it is unfair. But if that is fair, is becoming tall through a genetic add-in a fair or unfair advantage? Because we have to understand that in the beginning, when people are going to be doing genetic enhancements, they're not going to be trying to make their kids something alien to human beings. They're just going to want their children to get genes that other kids get naturally that give other kids advantages. That's what parents always want to do, is put their kids into the high class. So is this fair? Or is there something wrong with doing this? All the parents are going to be doing is putting their kids at this point on a curve. Other kids get to this point naturally. Can committees of tall men stop short parents from having taller boys? <laughs> so this is a question for Hal Shapiro and Tom Murray. Um, and will a child feel differently if his tallness is natural, selected, or added? I don't know the answer to that, but neither does anybody else. Uh, is genetic engineering unfair to those parents who can't afford it? So this is, I think, the issue for the future that people are not discussing. At some point, if this technology becomes safe, that's not going to happen soon, but at some point in the future, it will become safe. And then the real problem with this technology is not that it's going to be used for harm. I really don't think it will. The real problem with this technology, I believe, is that it's too good that those who don't have the availability of this technology uh, will be disadvantaged, I would claim. Now, I just want a final slide over here. Two books. These are covers of two books. One is called The End of uh, Science, written by uh, John Horgan. I think he's terribly wrong. I don't think science has ended. I think there's a lot more science that's going to be done. And this is a book called The End of History by Francis Fukuyama, who has actually now retracted his notion that history has ended. History is going to continue on for the future. Uh, I don't think I'll end it there. Thank you very much. Well, Lee, thank you very much. Let me ask Professor Murray to come up here for the question period. While they're coming, I would just make one observation in your final slide. I visited the University of Michigan about a year ago, and I walked into the Big Borders bookstore there, and they actually had about seven or eight shelves filled with books, all of which started with the end of. End of religion, end of this, end of that. It was, it's a whole genre now and, uh, in, in literature and, and so on. Well, thank you both very much for the very stimulating talks. I know I myself have some questions, but let me first uh, turn to the audience to see who has questions. And let me ask anyone who has a question to please stand up. It's easier for everyone to hear. We may have to repeat it anyhow, but at least to try. Nancy, you want to start?
Thank you. Everyone uh, hears the question. If I understand the nature of the question, uh, Professor Duff was raising the issue of uh, another thought experiment, if I could say so. That is, if there were only adults who could no longer bear children left in the world, it would still be important for them, you're suggesting, to define their moral relationships with each other, even though the reproductive possibilities had ended, calling into question Tom's assertion that that was critical to being human. If I haven't misstated your question, I'm repeating it mainly for the people who are doing the video and so on. But Tom, would you like to? There's an important lesson here for me. That is, one must be very careful about throwaway lines at the beginnings of talks. Um, all I meant, if I had been clearer, I would have explained that what I meant was if there were no persons around to ask the question, of, no humans to ask the question what it means to be human, you couldn't ask the question. <laughs> Uh, because there'd be nobody there to ask it, and nobody there to answer it, and nobody they're interested in it. That, that's, that's what I meant. Yeah. But you, you raised a much more uh, important point. I couldn't cover everything in the time I had. And that is, is, is there an implicit devaluation, therefore, of individuals who do not have children, either by choice or by, uh, because they can't? And, and they have absolutely not. I mean, I think the key here is, as I've written in my, in my book, the key here, I believe, is relationships of sort of mutual caring, relationships of generativity. And you can have them in a lot of different ways. Um, a lot of, many people, I, well, I hope at least a few people in this audience are teachers, uh, university or otherwise. Uh, and a lot of us get enormous, you know, moral growth and satisfaction out of those kinds of caring relationships, which are different from family relationships, but actually acquire some of their properties. So thank you for giving me the chance to clarify that I did not mean to say that children, having children was the only way you do this. But for most people, it's the most important way, and it's just because that's the way we're constructed. Uh, thank you. Yes, question right here. Um, Again, let me just ask if anyone want the question repeated. Okay. Well, the, the issue really is, uh, suggestion was that uh, Professor Murray had talked about uh, the selfless uh, relationship between uh, for parents, and how does that uh, really coincide with the issue of the selfish gene, or the concept of the selfish gene, if I haven't misstated your point. And it was a question for both uh, Tom and Lee, so Tom, you want to go first? Yeah. Well, the, the theory of the self, this quote, the quote selfish gene, I just find very uninteresting. I mean, I think it's, it's, it tries to point us away from what I think are the more interesting questions. Now, I'm glad you asked the question, though, because, again, it gives me a chance to clarify something. I don't think the relationship between parents and children is one of selflessness. It's, it's an interesting paradox here. Um, on the one hand, if you're totally selfish as a parent, you're going to be a lousy parent. Well, on the other hand, if you don't, take care of yourself, you're also going to be a lousy parent. Um, and one of the ironies in, in relationships, and it's not just true of parents and children, it's true in other human, significant human relationships. It's, 
it's, it's not actually a paradox. It's a, it's a deep fact about our, how our natures are constructed, I think, human psychology, that when we aim at another's good and flourishing, they benefit, but so do we. Um, and I call it mutuality. I admire the term from Eric Erickson, and there, there are others who talk about it too. So it's not pure selflessness. It's very much trying to be a good parent means looking out for, thinking about the interest of doing the right thing by your child. And if you do that, with any, and you have any success in it, it's, it's enormously, I don't know how to describe it. The, the, our, our vocabularies aren't very good at it. You can't say it's gratifying, you can say gratifying, satisfying, other things. But, but it's only by aiming at the others flourishing that, in that sense, you yourself also benefit. Lee, do you have any comment, particularly as might regard the selfish gene? Yes, I do. The question. Um, I'm, when Darwin came up with this theory of evolution, there was a huge gap in his theory because his theory suggested that uh, individuals would al always be out for their own good. They would always be selfish, and he didn't understand why, they were, why there was altruism, not just in human societies, but in societies, very simple animals like ants and, and bees as well. And the selfish gene theory, which it sounds like it's, it's a genetic license for selfishness, is actually the opposite. It's a, it's a biological explanation for why individuals are good to each other, why ants help each other, why bees help each other, why human beings um, love their children, and why human beings have extended families, and why society, I, I would argue, it's, it explains why societies function from a biological perspective. And, it's people might not like it, but it's the notion that you are good to your children, you're good to your family, and you're good to a larger community because in the past communities had genetic relationships. And so you, uh, in being good to a larger community, you're supporting the, the uh, continuation of the genes of that community, which are your own genes. So I think that the selfish gene theory, unfortunately, has that name, actually is the basis for why we act in unselfish ways. Thank you. Yes. Which I, which I dashed. Yes. <laughs> I could just repeat the issues, ask, I think, Professor Murray to address issues of what happens if the public dialogue, so critical to forming uh, public policy in a morally pluralistic environment, fails or doesn't take place. What's next? Tom? Uh, that's a terrific question. Um, I hope I didn't totally dash your hopes despite my comment. Um, I, we're living with the consequences of a failure to have the dialogue that we need to have, at least in some realms of policy. Look at the state of dialogue about abortion. And as I tried to indicate, look at the state of dialogue about the, how to think about how to have accountability and public regulation of assisted reproductive technologies. It's a free-for-all out there, by and large. Um, there's a modicum of professional self-regulation, but no national politician, and I talk to them, no national politician at this point seems to want to step up and uh, take on assisted reproductive technology, because that means taking on IVF, that means creation of human embryos, freezing them, all the stuff out of the stem cell controversy uh, times 100, and they, this is just a mare's nest for them. They don't want to do it. And I think it's... Be 
partly because we have the way the debate has been framed um, it allows everyone to end up feeling very righteous um, and they don't have to talk to the other side because the other side is so obviously wrong. And I'm saying, look, the head-on thing isn't working. Uh, thin notions of sort of all, all we need here is, you know, just a notion of individual liberty and we're, we're halfway home, we're all the way home. I, on the other side, I think that's not working very well either. And what I've argued is that if we could talk about these conceptions of much deeper conceptions of human flourishing, particularly whether our ideas about what it is to be a, a have a good life as a man and, as a, and have a good life as a woman are really more like or dislike, I think we'd act, we might have a chance to get somewhere. I'll give you a quick empirical uh, claim here. When the uh, Roe v. Wade happened, the, the labor market was changing. Um, but uh, and there, there are probably sociologists here who know this stuff much better than I do, so correct <laughs> me or whatever. But my sense is that there has been a strong uh, alteration in employment patterns, particularly among women in the United States. Even married women in the United States are much more likely to have a job now than they were before. Uh, what Lucre found back in the 70s was that if you cared about working, uh, then you understood the threat of totally uncontrollable fertility. And so it was important for you to have some, some ability to do that. And so you were more likely to be pro-choice than you were to be pro-life. If, in fact, the underlying sociology is changing, if more women, including women with very strong convictions about what it being mothers and how significant that is to them, if they're also having to work and confronting inequality in the workplace, they're going to be really ticked off. And there might at least be an opportunity then to talk about how should we regard working? How should we think about child care? There might be some possibilities for dialogue that would eventually, in my view, filter back around to questions about, well, what do we really think about abortion? That's my, that's my hope. Thank you. John? It's uh, always interesting when one has uh, developed a set of ideas with uh, nuances and qualifications to hear them get repeated in a very simplistic form. Um, I hate it when that happens, John. You, you do. Uh, and, uh, Tom, I just want to push you a bit on your version of procreative liberty, uh, thin and extreme cases that no one really uh, takes uh, very seriously at all, some of the extreme examples uh, you've given. And so let me put the question in this way. Um, if um, the state passed a law requiring people to be sterilized because of a view perhaps their genes were not correct, or if the state passed a law that said infertile couples cannot use IVF or assisted reproduction because it's unnatural or involves creating embryos, or if a state passed a law that said uh, couples that have either male or female infertility cannot use gamete donors, where would you go for protection against such intrusion on important personal matters such as having a family for human flourishing then to concepts such as procreative liberty? So you're using, you want to use extreme examples to, to support procreative liberty. <laughs> Well, I thought those were I thought those were extreme examples. Well, we have had laws against right. We have had laws against. We have had a Catholic church, some feminist 
Well, I think it's, it's uh, one has to accept that if, if one puts forward a particular point of view, um, that you have to be willing to follow the consequences and see where they lead and see whether or not they give you purchase. I actually propose two tests, not just the answers they give you, but the, in a way the, the prior test is, do they capture what seems to be morally significant? humanly significant, meaningful about the, the situation that you want to address. Um, if it only picks out a couple of th threads and just fails to acknowledge the rest, then the, to me that just raises a flag of suspicion. I mean, I'm worried that all these things are getting left out. Then you look at the kinds of answers it gives you to particular questions. Um, you know that you, we are, have the same, we come to the same conclusions about the cases you just laid out there. You've asked me now to say, what would be an alternative way of saying that, yes, we, sh we should not permit, this, the state should not be allowed to do these kinds of oppressive things. Yet, on the other hand, would also um, put brakes on some of the uses of assisted reproductive technologies. I think it's quite possible to articulate such views. They won't, they will look like, they will look a bit like procreative liberty, but there's going to be an awful lot more in the picture. Uh, and a lot of the things that have been previously sort of cast out as these merely symbolic values are going to have a lot more traction and force in this, in the conception that I would push. So that, that that's a very, beginning of a very long conversation, but that's where we have to start. Okay, perhaps we could take one more question, and I have a comment, and we better break, so we have a little break between now and the next talk. Yes. Want to stand, please? It's easier that way. The question is, what's the difference between talking about human flourishing or human nature? Is there some substantive underlying oh, difference? Tom has actually asked me to, to respond to this. I think there's a big difference. I, I don't think that human – I would actually agree with the notion of human flourishing in the sense of uh, as, a, um, as a civilized people, we've come up with, with, with ways of – ways in which we should treat other people, and that those are not necessarily based on natural law. I mean, so that's why I took exception to last night uh, when uh, uh, Jim Childress was talking about natural law. I think that we as a people come together. We don't base it on that. We base it on principles that as a society we see is, is, best, for, is best for people. I mean, in the simplest way, I would see a difference between the two. I don't know. Um, it's a good question. I mean, it's a very legitimate and important question. I don't have a comprehensive answer. The, the, the term natural has been so, has become so hoary in, in philosophy and has been, uh, with justification, found to have been misused extensively. It also tends to be, it's, tend, it's tended to be largely used in a kind of reductionistic way, focusing on the biology. Uh, the biology is important, but it's not all important. Uh, and I, I t tend to be more interested in the forms of life in which human beings construct themselves. Uh, and, you know, families, 
partly out of biology, but also very much out of very social, cultural, institutional factors, have come to be very a crucial form in which human beings are shaped and, and find meaning and, and, and the like. So, I th and flourishing is functioning more at that level, and I think less tied into a kind of biologistic, deterministic, reductionistic account of what human beings are. So that's that's where I'd start. Well, I want to thank you both very much. There's an issue which is. Um always been in the back of my mind as I've tried to deal with some of these bioethical issues that I think has some relationship both for people who come to it from an ethical standpoint or a philosophical standpoint and those who come to it perhaps from a biological uh, standpoint. And I was struck by this because both of you talked about parents in the end as being quite critical or parentage being quite critical. And that's a well-known uh, problem in moral philosophy, name, which I don't know uh, which I can summarize by using Tom's phrase, which he talked about, new ways of imagining what a good life would be, was a phrase I think, Tom, you introduced here. And the question is, in some sense, how many generations does one have to carry this thought process through? For the, just the mother and the father who are thinking about it, for the child, for the grandchild, um, there's just this issue of how far one has to carry one's moral calculations forward. Uh, which strikes me as an often noted issue, but seldom really thought through in carefully, at least from what I've been able to read. So I'm hoping that as we think about these things, as we go ahead in this conference elsewhere, that we start thinking a little bit more about that well-defined problem. It's an old problem, uh, long understood to be a problem, but seldom, seldom dealt with carefully. And I think in some ways that might be an avenue in which things dealing with some things as long-term as, as natural selection or artificial selection, whatever it might be in the future. And a well-known uh, moral pro problem, moral philosophy has been around for many, many uh, decades. So thank you all for your attention. We are reconvened at 10th or is that right, Bob? Okay, thank you both very much. We have to go, we have to go to 40 miles, how about 10 yards? Thank you. That's probably, I probably enjoyed it very much. It was a neat presentation. Quite terrific. I really enjoyed it. Maybe we'll stay in my mind. Pictures are... Yeah.